All right. So this morning, I'll be sharing with you and talking with you. Um, and we, if you want to just go ahead and flip there, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Thank you. Um, but as you're flipping there, uh, one of the things that I love most about Bible study is seeing connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's so cool for me to see the strings that God uses to connect things all throughout the Bible that he's given to us. Connections between different books and different authors and different time periods. And I love this because to me, it's just such a testament that the Bible is truly the inspired word of God. Because there's no way things like that could happen without there being a divine author to the Bible. And so I love those kind of things. And I mention that because as I start to be up here in front of you guys a little bit more, uh, I'm finding it difficult to pick a passage to talk about. Because there are so many places that my mind goes and so many topics that I can think of to talk about. Um, and it's really, truly difficult for me to stop and decide where to start. And I have what I call ADHD train of thought. Um, when there are a lot of things to be done, I'm honestly like all over the place. I start here in one spot and in the middle I get distracted and go to another spot to start something else. And the worst is whenever I'm cleaning up the house. And at our house, there's like the living room, dining room, and kitchen is kind of all one big area. And so whenever I start, I'll start picking up shoes. And then I'll see, oh, there's Nerf bullets. I need to go pick all those up. And then, oh, there's dirty clothes. I got to go start a load of clothes real quick. And as I'm getting there, there's dirt on the floor. So I need to start sweeping. And there's dirty dishes. So I go to, the, and it just goes on and on and on. And so Felicia hates it. My wife hates that because it's, all over the place. She does not have that problem. But I'm sure that I'm not the only one who does that. And so imagine that kind of brain where I'm just reacting, reacting, reacting. And so it is truly hard to pick a topic to speak about for me. And so especially when there's no restrictions, because Pastor Mark, he keeps saying, it's totally up to you. You just pick. You do you. And so I could go anywhere. So with all that going on in my brain, I had to stop and say, hey, what has caught my attention? And I asked God, is there something others need to hear and something that they can learn from? And from that place, that's when I started thinking about that Old Testament to New Testament thing. Because I was just thinking, what's grabbed my attention recently? And that brought me to our passage today. And that's where we're going to start talking about this week and next week. So this is a passage that really grabbed my attention. And I just love how the New Testament is calling all the way back to some stories in the Old Testament, and some that some of us may not know very well. So if we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, we're actually going to start in verse 3, but as in, I'm sure you're most there right now, but uh, let's set up a little bit of context for you. Um, so Paul was on a missionary journey. He had gone to Corinth, and he had spread the good news about Christ, um, and so a church was established there. There's a letter that the apostle, uh, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Corinth. He had uh, additionally written one first, and he was talking to them. And in the time between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, some teachers had come to Corinth, and they were spreading false teaching. And one of the things that they were doing in their false teaching was they were basically putting a bad name on Paul. And they were saying that he was not the true uh, apostle. He was not teaching the true word. And so that was one thing that he wrote this letter for. He was writing 2 Corinthians to address that issue, okay? And 
the teachers started getting momentum in Corinth. And so he had to write a letter to put a stop to all that. And so where we're picking up is Paul defending himself against these accusations. And he started chapter three. He was saying, do we need letters of recommendation? And he said, no, you guys are the letter of recommendation, okay? And then we're gonna pick up in verse three. Maybe. I don't know, will you go to the next slide? Sorry. Okay, uh, but it's in your Bibles, and we'll start in verse 3, and it says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And here, let's pray real quick. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have to come and uh, look at the scriptures and just look at what we can learn from it. And I pray that we would take that and grow and apply it to our lives and to how we think about life and that it would make an impact in how we uh, interact with others around us and spreading your good news, God. Uh, be with us this morning, and we love you so much. Amen. All right, so if you're anything like me, reading Paul sometimes can be a little tedious because of the way he writes, and so I just kind of want to go through some of the verses and talk about what they mean. Um, oh, sweet, it's working now. So, Start in verse 3. It says, And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So here, Paul is defending himself against false teachers to the Corinthians, and he started chapter 3, remember, saying, I don't need letters of proof from you or from you. I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. I'm the one that was there and started the church. And that's when we get to verse 3. He says, No, you are the letter. Your life is the letter. You are the recommendation. But how he words it shows the emphasis of who brings salvation. He says, your letter from Christ delivered by us, meaning what Christ has done for you and through you is the proof, not anything that we did. We are just the messengers. He's talking about him and the other people that were with him. And this idea is echoed by Paul in other places too. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, what is that, 1-5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And also in 1 Thessalonians 2-13, it says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the result of such preaching by, by Christ through Paul was a living letter known and read by all. Paul needed no further authentication of his ministry. But not only do we learn something about the immediate context with Paul, but we get something that informs how we think about ourselves ministering. 
when we receive and proclaim the gospel, it's not through the work of men, but from the work of God. Man is just the vessel. Christ is the one that sent the message. And that is so impactful because when there are situations that arise where humans let each other down, our salvation doesn't need to be questioned because we know it's from Christ and not from sinful man. Whenever we see the other people around us, the wise people that taught us or brought us to Christ, and we see things that are disappointing or imperfect or things that we don't approve of, we can still rest in the fact that our salvation is secure. It doesn't depend on those people. It's through Christ that our salvation is offered. So it's secure because of that. And then Paul continues with this analogy, uh, or sorry, begins the analogy between the Old Testament and New Testament. And he says, written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul starts using this analogy because the false teachers, one of the things that they had approached the Corinthians with was the teaching that people had to become Jewish to become Christians. And that, sound, that might not sound normal to us, but what that meant was that the people had to get uh, circumcised, there was old covenant ceremony that they had to follow, and there was all this legalism that was uh, being followed through that. And that's what they were teaching. You had to do all of this along with everything that Christ was saying. And so because of this, Paul mentions those tablets of stone. He's trying to call back on that Old Testament. And that's a reference to the Ten Commandments that were written on the tablets. Most of us probably recognize that. But in Exodus 32, it says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So this is what Paul was referencing when he was talking about tablets of stone. The law written on the tablets was external. I'm going to be using the words external and internal a lot. So it confronted people with their inability to obey the perfect holy standards of God. And so it condemned them. It showed them that you cannot live up to this, okay? That was that external thing that they were uh, learning from the Old Testament. But God promised that something better was coming. And this is probably one of my favorite verses now through this study for this sermon. It's in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was a prophet. And in chapter 31, verse 33, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Does that sound a little bit familiar to what Paul just said? That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to say, this is what Jeremiah was talking about. This is what he was saying he's going to put on our hearts, this new covenant. So Paul was using this reference to reinforce the idea that what the gospel is, is something internal. It's not on stones that we can look at and see, but it's in our hearts that's inside of us. And I love all these connections that are starting with the Old and New Testament, and there's going to be even more. So then if, in your Bibles, if you uh, read next in verse 4, when, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. And that word such is important right there. It says such is the confidence. And what he's referring to is what he said previously right in that sentence before. It says because of that, we know that it's not through man, but through Christ that we have this written in our hearts. Because of that, we can have confidence towards God. And that is something that is so important to us. Because we know it's not through man, we can have confidence towards God. And then moving to verse 5. 
It says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And so we're not sufficient to claim anything in ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. That comes from God. And this speaks to an idea that Paul says later as well in 2 Corinthians. This is probably a verse that most of us have heard, but maybe something we haven't really considered. So later in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul is still talking to the Corinthians. And he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we recognize that we are not it, we are not the ones that our eternity depends on, we are then made strong because we're depending not on ourselves, but on Christ. His sufficiency is realized. And then Paul says that they are made ministers of a new covenant. So if there's a new covenant, that automatically implies what? That there's an old covenant. There, look, that was good. Awesome. So there's an old covenant. And this may be something that seems silly or something that you've heard a million times if you've been in church for a little while. But it's such a big deal. It is honestly one of the most important things in our lives. And most of us probably don't consider it day to day. It's just something we don't think about. But the fact that we are under the new covenant and not the old covenant, or not even the fact that we're under it, but just the fact that God promised and delivered a new covenant is so important. Because a covenant, it's, that's not a word that we probably use a lot today, but a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. So it typically involves some type of formal statement between, about the relationship and a list of like stipulations and obligations. And then there, was, um, there were witnesses to the agreement, and then there were also a list of curses for unfaithfulness and blessings for faithfulness. So the Old Testament, which is, or sorry, the Old Covenant, which is the Old Testament, was written in stone, like we just said, and it held the Israelites to a strict standard that was impossible to keep. This standard was the perfect holiness of God and required a sacrifice for forgiveness and salvation. And so there are all these ceremonial laws, there were cultural laws, there were food laws, all these things. And it was a huge list. And it was just things that you can't do on your own. It was impossible. Now we are under the new covenant. And that is the promise that was delivered in the New Testament. That if we believe in Christ and surrender our lives to him, then his sacrifice on the cross was for us, and we are promised eternal life. And one of the guys that I was studying, uh, R.C. Sproul, this is what he says. The law written on the tablets of stone at Sinai was external. That's where I got that word from. It confronted people with their inability to obey perfectly the good requirements of God and thus condemned them. These were violations that held them accountable, right? But then the new covenant, God writes his law on the hearts of those he redeems. The power of the Holy Spirit enables them to keep that law. And the righteousness of Christ imputed to them by grace covers all their violations of it. So because of that new covenant, those violations can be forgiven because Christ died for us. Honestly, we could spend a whole year studying just the differences between the old and the new covenants because there's so much that we could look at and investigate. But We'll go ahead and give you the Spark Notes version. 
which if you understand what SparkNotes is, then you're you know, at the same life level as me. That's just a short version. The SparkNotes version is Christ was crucified and died for us, and through him we are promised eternal connection with God. And that is the greatest blessing anyone could ever dream of or ask for, right? And so if the last part of verse 6, if, when we're still in chapter 3 there, says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. And so Paul was saying they're ministers of the letter, the old covenant. And now they are ministers of the new covenant, the Spirit. And so just to be clear, one thing that I think is really important to understand here is the difference between the old and the new covenant is not a difference in moral standards. I think that's important. The difference between the two is not a difference between the moral standards. They're still held to the same standard. God's, where are we at? There we go. God's moral law does not change because it is grounded in his holiness. No matter if you were in the Old Testament or us now in the New Testament, it doesn't change because it's still grounded in God and his holiness. But now that we have the law in our hearts, we are guided by the Holy Spirit and we have access and forgiveness in Christ. But even so, Paul says the letter kills. It kills by bringing light to the inability we have in keeping it, and it also kills through the eternal death which is the penalty for not keeping it. And this is where the worldview and cultural society can come in and really sway our idea of Christianity. Because society can look at this list of rules, these moral standards that God has, and they can say, that's impossible to follow. There's no way that I want to live like that. Why would I try? Why would I even want to? And because of those ideas, they're repelled by the moral standards of God. They're pushed away. They're saying, I can't do that. I'm not even going to look at it. I'm not going to try. I don't want to live that way. But that's the opposite of what happens to a Christ follower. When God opens our eyes to that moral standard, when we look at the law and God's holiness, we're not repelled by it. We don't see God's moral standards and immediately turn away. We see that there's no way we can do it on our own, and so that pushes us towards Christ. Instead of repelling us, it pushes us to say, hey, we need somebody to come help. We need something that can help us get there. And that's what we need. We need Christ. And Paul says something that's really important in a different letter in Galatians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So he's saying the law was here to help us. To, and some versions of the Bible say to tutor us or to lead us to Christ. And then we are justified by faith. So that law was there. God did it on purpose. He had a divine purpose for everything. And it was there to teach us and show us how we're supposed to live. And that was supposed to push us towards Christ. And then let's keep going with what Paul was talking about. Um, in verse 7 and 8, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So here's Paul saying, look at how good the law was. And he references a fact about Moses. So again, he's using the Old Testament to strengthen what's in the New Testament. And one of those strings that God created was this uh, reference to what happened to Moses. And some of us may know this story, but it's a little less known. Um, but it's based in Exodus 34. So if you want to turn there real quick, it's Exodus 34. And we're going to be starting in verse 9. What's happening here is 
Moses has just come down from convening with God. He had gone up the mountain, talked to God. He got the tablets. He got the law and the stone, and he was bringing it down. And so we're picking up in verse 29, and it says, when Moses came, oh, we're going to go through verse 35, by the way. So verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So the law's glory was so evident to all who saw Moses after he came down from the mountain because his face was literally shining, right? His face literally shined after he convened with God, so much so that they were scared of him. They were afraid. Just imagine what they, that may have looked like. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine, but it's, it had to be scary for sure. And here's a tiny detail that people growing up in the church may have mixed up. And in fact, I had mixed up until I started looking at it a little bit more. At least for me, I grew up hearing that Moses hid his face when he talked to the people so that they wouldn't be afraid. I don't know if anybody else thought that, but that's actually the opposite of what happened. That's wrong. The Bible, look at what it just said. It said that he removed his veil when he went and talked to the Lord, and he would come back to tell the people what happened while his face was shining, and then he put the veil back on. And that's the opposite of what I grew up understanding. I'm not sure where the mix-up happened, but Moses used his shining face as evidence of the amazing glory of the law and God. He used it as a marker of how great it was, and he didn't hide it. He let people see his shining face. That is how great the old covenant was. It was glorious. It made his face shine so bright that people were scared of it. It had so much effect on Moses that it literally changed him, and he didn't hide it from the people. He showed them and after he had talked to them about what God told him, he put the veil back on. And so going back to 2 Corinthians, Paul said all of the glory was being brought to an end. It was fading. It wasn't permanent because God had promised a better covenant, the new covenant. And Paul says, how much better will that be? Won't that have even more glory? So just pause to think about that. We're clearly not walking around with shiny faces anymore for everyone to see, even though that would be kind of cool. Um, but we're not walking around with shiny faces. But he still says that, that this new covenant is going to have more glory. So what does Paul mean? How could this new covenant that we have access to be even more glorious and we are not physically changed like Moses was? Clearly something is different. So let me give you something to think about. In the old covenant, only one person had access to go to God. And in this case, in this story, it was Moses. There was only one way to encounter that. And that was to physically follow the instructions that God had laid down. But now, in the new covenant, everyone has access to God. And there isn't a physical barrier stopping us from that because it's in our hearts. That's what Paul is saying. That's why it's so much more glorious. 
because of Christ's death, now we all have access to God. We don't need a shiny face to show everyone that one person talked to God. We don't need that anymore. Our lives are the evidence that we are talking to God. Our changed lives, changed minds, actions, intentions, and everything else that people can see around us that we are doing, that is the evidence that we have convened with God. We don't need that shiny face because we all have access now instead of just the one person at a certain specific time with certain specific instructions. We all have access now. And so we keep moving forward in verse 9, uh, still in Second Corinthians 3, verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So right here, Paul is doubling down. He's calling Old Testament ministry condemnation because it's condemning us. It's telling us how bad and we, how much we cannot reach that perfect standard. That glory is a fading glory. And that's why Moses put the veil over his face. That's what a lot of scholars believe. So others wouldn't see that it's fading. He said he put the, face, uh, the veil back on until he went and spoke with the Lord again. It basic, and Paul is saying it basically has no glory at all because of how amazing the new covenant is through Christ. And then Paul calls the new covenant the ministry of righteousness. Through Jesus, we are justified, and so we are declared righteous. And how much better that is. And let me show you something that will help explain why that's such a big deal. So in Psalm 134, or sorry, 143, verses 1 and 2, before we even read it, don't think this is going to be like ooey-gooey and make you feel good, okay? That's not one of the verses that we're looking at right here. It's just a warning. So those verses say, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy, and your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So the writer of this psalm is telling us that God is righteous, and no one living is righteous. But justification means that we are declared righteous before God, and that means we are declared not guilty before God. That judgment that this uh, author is writing about, we don't have to worry about because we're declared not guilty. That's why Paul calls the new covenant the ministry of righteousness, because through Christ's sacrifice, we can all be declared righteous even though we don't deserve it. We can be declared guilty even though we are still sinful. And our sins aren't excused or ignored. They're still bad. That's still against the holy standard that God has. But they are, however, fully punished. The wrath of God is fully satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. And that is what makes the new covenant so amazing. And now it doesn't make sense why Paul says the old covenant has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Because we understand that sacrifice of Christ shows us that we are declared not guilty. Even though sin is still paid for by his sacrifice, we are not holding to that. The new covenant is so much more that its glory far exceeds anything we could have hoped for or imagined. And then in verse 11, we keep moving through. For Paul says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And again, Paul does this all the time. He's just reinforcing his point again, how much more it will be. But what really caught my attention here was that word permanent. That really hit me. Permanent has so much heaviness behind it. What Christ has brought and made possible and extended to us 
will never be uh, superseded, supplemented, or surpassed. I'm going to say that again. Just because I, I want you to think about that. What Christ brought and extended to us will never be superseded, supplemented, or surpassed. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can take away from it. And there's nothing that will ever be better. It is permanent. Permanent, though, through our sinful selves, we can become desensitized to. We can get used to it, and it doesn't make much of a difference in our lives. If something's always there, we start to take it for granted. And that's what I was referencing back at the beginning. We don't think about it. um, And we certainly don't, uh, sorry, we don't think about it every day. It's like laundry. (laughs) This was the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking about this. It's like laundry. We grow up with our moms or somebody doing our laundry. And we just trust that we have clean clothes. We just know that they're always going to be there. And so we don't think about it. And we certainly don't thank anyone for clean clothes when we're kids, right? I know I, because I'm the one that does laundry in my house. My kids don't thank me for clean clothes. They just know they're going to be there, right? We don't realize how big of a deal it is until suddenly it's our responsibility to do laundry, right? We forget about it. We take it for granted because it's always there. And it's the same with this idea of this permanent glory. We forget about it because it's always there, but it is such a big deal. And this idea of the new covenant, I feel, gets that same treatment. We get used to it. We uh, trust that it's always there. We stop thinking about it because it's permanent. But that's something that we need to change. We need to think about what a big deal this is in our lives. We have full access to God and the Holy Spirit with law written on our hearts because of the huge sacrifice that God made for us. The new covenant is the only reason that we have any of that, that ministry of righteousness that Paul just mentioned. This is something that should energize us and fill us up. Sorry. This is something that should fill us up every day. And it reminded me of another verse that uh, I'm actually trying to, this is one of the verses I've memorized recently. It's Romans 12:11. It says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. It's very short, short sentences, and I love that. It's saying, don't be slothful in zeal. Don't slow down in your excitement for Christ. Be fervent in spirit. Fervent, I had to look up that word, honestly. I didn't know what that meant. Fervent means passionate, right? Be passionate in spirit and serve the Lord. And this is exactly what I'm trying to give to you guys today, is that idea of don't slow down in your excitement. Don't let that die off. Be passionate in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord with that excitement every day. Let that motivate you the way that it should. Let it permeate through your life. We're blessed to have this new covenant, and we didn't do anything to earn it. Remember, Paul told us that we are not sufficient in ourselves to get it. It was only given through Christ. And how much better is it than the ministry of death? Paul just called the Old Testament. It's so much better than the ministry of death. And I pray that, uh, sorry, as Michelle, if you can go ahead and start coming up, I pray that this scripture lives in your heart this week and constantly from now on, that we are all reminded how glorious this relationship with God is that we have, because only through his holiness do we have access to it. Only through his perfect design do we see that connection from the Old Testament, the holy moral standard that God is, and how through the New Testament, it was Jesus. He was the only way we could all gain a relationship with God. And that's the only way we have it. God has perfectly designed history and he perfectly designed the Bible to create all of this so that we can accept his offer and bring glory to him. And how 
glorious is that? That we have access to that and that it is in our hearts and that it is written there. And I pray that that's just with you today and we'll pray and we'll get going and I just appreciate you guys letting me be up here. Thank you. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for this word that you've given us uh, through 2 Corinthians. Just the the impact that it can have in our minds and our hearts as we are living day to day. I pray that you would uh, help us to remember that that new covenant is permanent. There's nothing that can surpass it or supplement it or anything that could be better than that. And I pray that that would infect our lives with zeal and service for you, God, that we would really remember that and let it energize us so that we can serve you. Uh, Be with us this week with everything that's going on. And God, I pray that everything we do just brings glory to you. And we love you so much. Amen.